This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. We're going to go ahead and get started or so. Um, so, again, um, let me start off by thanking each and every one of you for being here. Uh, I know there's lots of places you could be, and uh, I'm so happy to see such a great crowd to hear what I think will be a very engaging and thought-provoking presentation. Uh, so thank you all for being here. My name is Mark Robinson. I am a professor in the history department here at Whitworth, and I also teach in the U.S. Cultural Studies program. Yeah. Go, go history and U.S. Cultural Studies. Um, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to uh, this evening's event, Racial Injustice, Housing, and Spokane History, a lecture by Logan Camporeale. Uh, before I introduce Mr. Camporeale, uh, I'd like to give a few acknowledgments. First off, I'd like to acknowledge uh, Casey Andrews, Gretchen Scott, and the Speakers and Artists Program for supporting this event. I'd also like to thank Anita Lewis, Katie Mann, and the History Department for their support. Let's give uh, both a round of applause for, for both programs. I'd also want to acknowledge uh, the Dornstife Center, who has also been an active partner in this, this project uh, of this event and some of the follow-up. Uh, often, I find uh, after hearing a presentation that looks at social injustice or some issue of inequality, um, we can be left with a feeling of, boy, um, I really want to do something about this. Now that I've learned this information, how can I get involved? How can I help? Um, and so we're very pleased that at the end of the program, but before the Q&A, so right after the talk, um, one of our Dornsife leaders, student leaders, uh, Isabel Hogat is going to be coming forward uh, and just give a brief presentation about an upcoming impact trip this October that gives students a chance to get involved uh, in Spokane and maybe have an impact on some of these issues that we're learning about tonight. So I invite you to stay for that brief uh, presentation at the end of uh, Mr. Camporelli's talk, uh, and then the Q&A will be right after, right after that. Uh, and now, let me introduce our keynote speaker. Uh, Logan Camporeale is a public, local, and digital historian living and working in Spokane who holds a master's and bachelor's degree in history from Eastern Washington University. As part of his master's program, Mr. Camporeale worked at the Washington State Archives Digital Archives and Washington State Archives Eastern Region Branch. Currently, he is the volunteer coordinator at the Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture, and he is also a contributor and editor to the website Spokane Historical. He's also a blogger and a research activist. So without any further ado, please help me welcome Logan Camperelli. How's everybody doing tonight? Can you hear me all right? Cool. 
Um, good evening, Whitworth. Um, as Mark said, my name is Logan Camporiali, and I'm here to talk with you about racially restrictive covenants, um, particularly in Spokane. Um, first, I want to say a few thank yous. I would do it at the end, but I'm certain to forget. Um, so I just want to say thanks to Mark Robinson for inviting me to speak, um, and also to uh, the other uh, name you see up here, Bethany Mikolas. Um, she was a, a, a law student that helped me with a lot of this work, um, especially the legal aspects that are way over my head. I also want to say thanks to Ali Honigan, Matthew Wright, Anna Harbine, and the Center for Justice, who all helped make this project possible. All right, first, I'm going to tell you about how I learned about racially restrictive covenants in Spokane. Then we'll talk about what a covenant is um, and how they spread across the city. And then we'll shift gears a little bit and look at the national context, including redlining, the Supreme Court, and the Fair Housing Act. Finally, we'll talk about what can be done to remove the covenants in our neighborhoods. Like Mark said, I recently completed my master's program in public history at Eastern Washington University. During my program, I had a two-year graduate assistant, assistantship at the Washington State Archives, Digital Archives, and Eastern Region Branch. Um, while I was working there, one of my primary duties was to fulfill reference requests. When people call the archives, I'm looking for some sort of document. Um, I answer the phone, Washington State Archives, how can I help you? Um, and, and they tell me what they're looking for. Um, it's then my job to go back in the stacks full of documents and, and find whatever it is. Um, one day while, while we were working, uh, my, my coworker, Allie Honekin, who I mentioned before, um, she received a call from a researcher who was interested um, in putting a new fence in her front yard. Not a usual request for us. Um, but, but what had happened is her neighbor had told her that she couldn't put this fence in um, because there was a restrictive covenant in her neighborhood that prevented her from doing so. She called the county auditor and said, hey, um, it looks like I have a covenant in my neighborhood, and would you mind providing that to me? The auditor sent her to the archives because we hold that information. Um, so we, we completed the request. We went and found this uh, document for her. Um, and fortunately for her, there was nothing about a fence. Um, she was good to go. She could build her little, her little white picket fence in her front yard. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, what we, uh, the other thing that we discovered, well, here's my fence. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, unfortunately, we discovered something a, a little more frustrating. Uh, it didn't have anything to do with the fence, um, but we discovered a, a different clause in the document. I'll give you all a moment to read this. It was pretty shocking. Um, I was frustrated immediately. Uh, I didn't really understand. Um, I, I had a, a initial assumptions, like, you know, these sorts of things happen in the South, not in the Pacific Northwest. What am I reading here? Um, and I was, I was quite confused by it. Um, also, uh, being a, a bit of an activist myself, uh, I was already thinking about, are these things still on the books? Are they still active? And if so, how can we remove them? Or what can we do about it to remediate them? So what is a covenant? Does anybody know what's a covenant? Come on, somebody. What's a covenant? A promise, right? We're at a religious school. A promise, right? A covenant, a promise. Um, so let's, let's apply that same concept, a promise, to, to, to property documents. Basically, it's a legal promise between a seller and a buyer um, that sets particular restrictions on that piece of property. Um, they are usually uh, designated to a group of homes, often an entire addition or maybe a neighborhood. 
In Spokane, these documents are filed with the county auditor when they're put in place. And so when you want to do something like this, you would file it with the county auditor. Um, when somebody buys or sells a home, or particularly when you buy a home, these documents should be included um, so you know what you're getting into um, when, when you buy your house. In most cases, the only way to remove covenants is for a majority of property owners to agree together that they should remove them. Oh, I guess I already asked you that. I forget to click the button sometimes. Um, yeah, so this is a little bit, just, just explains a little bit more what a covenant is. So what kinds of things are restricted in covenants? This, this top one here, temporary structures. No structure of a temporary character, trailer, basement, tent, shack, garage. You know, no temporary things can be built on your property. Pretty innocuous, not, not very uh, uh, shocking. Um, nuisances. No noxious or offensive activity shall be carried out upon any lot. So really, sort of vague. You know, you can't do anything noxious on your property. No detached garages. So if you want to build a garage, it has to be attached. Any dwelling or structure erected in any place um, in the subdivision shall be completed within six months. You've got, you got to be quick. Um, you have to complete your construction very quickly. What have we got here? The size of your house, how, how big the ground floor is. If it's a one-story, the ground floor must be this big. If it's a two-story, it must be this big. Really basic things, right? And nothing too offensive here. And then you have this one. I'm usually tucked inside of all of those, uh, like I said, relatively unoffensive. Um, you have this, this clause tucked inside. So how does it work? How does a covenant work? A statutory warranty deed, or what you're looking at right here, is the document that is used to transfer property from one person to another. So there's other types of deeds too, but the statutory warranty deed is a very typical one in Washington state. Um, and when you buy a piece of property, this is the document that changes hands and is also filed with the county auditor to keep record of that. Um, you can see it lists the edition right on here. I have it underlined, high drive, first edition. Um, so that's the, uh, the edition that this property is within. And this is text from a declaration of protective covenants. You can see the introduction at the top, which, specify, which speci specifies the addition that these covenants apply to. And at the bottom, you can see the racial restriction included in this covenant. So you have the, the deed, the deed along with the covenant, they're attached. They work together to create these restrictions on your property. Um, deed and covenant filed together with the auditor. When were they put in place? And people often ask, often ask how, did, how did this happen in Spokane? Now, what is Spokane's history of segregation? Um, Carl Maxey, um, one of uh, Spokane's first black attorney and an important black figure in Spokane, um, he says that uh, when, when the first, what he calls the black pioneers, first came to Spokane, um, he says, quote, the funny thing is the original 300, the black pioneers, they lived all over Spokane. The dominant number lived in the east side area, but by far, it couldn't be said that there was just one area. And I think he's, he's really talking about um, the, the turn of the century. 
Um, in the 1900 census, Spokane had 376 black residents, or somewhere around 1% of the population. Um, and it sounds like these people, for the most part, um, lived without a, a ton of overt segregation in Spokane. Um, however, uh, early in Spokane's history, a, a fort, an army fort is established here, Fort George Wright. Um, and the first set of soldiers that are garrisoned there are buffalo soldiers. What are, what are buffalo soldiers, anybody? Anybody? Black soldiers. Um, they just come back from, from fighting in San Juan, and they're stationed in Spokane. And Spokaneites are not excited about that development. Um, they were hoping for a different um, group of soldiers to be stationed here. So it's not like being black in Spokane was, was always peachy. Um, it, but but it, it definitely wasn't the same amount of segregation as we see further along. Most, uh, pro most uh, of these documents uh, start to pop up in, in the late 30s and early 40s, um, but they trickle uh, well into the 1960s. Um, it seems like a, it's a response to changes at the Supreme Court level that it caused them to be put into place, um, but also increases in migration. Um, more black folks are moving to Spokane, um, and it causes people to start thinking about where they're settling and where they're moving in. Um, in most cases, they were attached to property documents before homes were built by the developers that created the addition. Um, so if you were a developer, a real estate developer in Spokane, and you were about to develop this nice big plot of property, you owned all the plots, you subdivided it, now you could set those racial restrictions and then start selling off the properties. Uh, everybody that bought one would be subjected to those racial restrictions. And, and you, know, you, you didn't have to agree with anybody on it because you owned all the properties. And they spread rapidly across the city as more black folks moved to Spokane in the middle of the century. So who's responsible? Um, I, I put a, a number of different ones up here that, that kind of show uh, the top of the covenant and show who was responsible for putting it in place. Um, in this case, it's Eagle Investment Company. Um, no, it doesn't ring any bells to me. It doesn't really mean anything. Moving forward. Again, George Gorig, Helen Gorig, more people that I don't understand. I don't, I don't recognize their names. Um, but just more Spokenites um, that, that were apparently segregationists. Um, again, more names I don't recognize. Um, so it's, we're not necessarily sure who's responsible. You can't necessarily put blame. Um, but there are some names that I do recognize. This one here. Um, and let me just be clear, I just ran through a whole bunch of different names. Um, the, the Coles are no different than the other folks that, that are listed on these. Um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, to, to characterize how much involvement they may or may not have had in this process. Um, I imagine that attorneys wrote most of these documents. I highly doubt that William Coles himself is sitting down writing this. Um, and I don't mean to take responsibility away from him. I don't mean to dump more responsibility on him. Um, but you can see you know, how that might be a little bit interesting. Here he is. Um, but just to be clear, this isn't how the Coles family feels today. Um, this is a statement from Betsy Coles. Um, she, after she found out about this, she made a relatively forceful statement, and I'll read it. 
It isn't clear to me exactly what role William Coles Jr. had in the overall development at that time. What is very clear is that such racial segregation is offensive and in no way represents our company or family values. Today, we are proud of the work we have done and will continue to do in our companies and community to celebrate diversity and honor differences. So just to be clear, this isn't how the Coles feel today. Um, and, and, you know, the level of involvement William Coles had, I, I can't speculate on it. Um, all, all I can show you is, is what's on the document. Oh, I forgot to click this, sorry. <laughs> See, I clicked the wrong thing, and there he is. And I forgot to show you that, too, sorry. I'll let you take a look at that for a second. So I want to explore this really quickly. Um, this is a map that I made that sort of shows where these things are at in town. Open it up. Um, once I started finding the covenants, I realized it just wouldn't do it any justice if we couldn't visualize where they were. And that was the most important thing. Especially when you read them, they say, you know, so-and-so edition, which doesn't mean anything to most of us that live in Spokane. Unless it's Brown's edition, you know, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, so I just started plotting them on a Google map to figure out where they were. Just to give you some reference, there's Wetworth University. So here's the, the closest neighborhood that had a racial restriction um, right here. I mean, you can feel free to explore this in your own time. Um, once you click on it, you can actually click on the covenant and pull it right up so that you can take a look at it. This is pretty cool. Um, the ones that the Coles owned, the Coles owned a lot of this property right here. Um, and they must have been developing this big chunk of property and as they developed it, um, this, they put those covenants in. Um, but they're not just in the city limits. You also see some out in the valley here. Anyone's from Spokane Valley? One in, a couple in Millwood, and then one even further out here. Um, so they're very varied. Um, it's not like a, a, a single location where they exist. Um, but you can see that they're, they're sort of all over town. So redlining, has anybody heard of redlining? Show of hands. Cool. Um, the locations of those additions that I just showed you with racially restrictive covenants were not an accident. Um, they line up very well with the redlining maps created by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, a New Deal agency. Um, this agency created color-coded maps that identified levels of risk and creditworthiness in neighborhoods. Basically, whether or not somebody should, or a bank should be willing to offer a mortgage or not. Realtors, developers, and other citizens would use these maps to maintain racial segregation in their communities. Um, just a, a, you know, a personal story. Um, Frank Hopkins, owner of the Ebony Cafe, told the Spokesman Review in 1969 what happened when he bought a house on the north side, outside of an established black area. Um, just as he was about to move in, someone broke out 28 windows in one night. Um, so these things were pretty, pretty, uh, pretty firm. Um, they weren't just suggestions. Um, they, they, were, they were the way it is. This is some propaganda. It says on there, it's, it's a little small, it says, an entire block ruined by Negro invasion. Every house marked X, now occupied by Negroes. Save your home, vote for segregation. 
Um, this isn't from Spokane, um, but you can see the sort of push that's made. Um, that people are saying, you know, once black people have moved into your neighborhood, the value of your home is going to diminish. Um, and you should try to prevent it. You should try to keep black people from moving to your neighborhood. This is a pretty cool map here. Um, it shows that the mechanisms that were put in place um, to, to maintain segregation, they worked, clearly. Um, this 1960 map uses the census data um, to plot where black people lived in Spokane. Each one of those dots up there represents 10 black people. Do I have a little laser here? Yeah. So this neighborhood here is uh, sort of uh, basically East Central. And then this is sort of the Altamont neighborhood over here. You can't see Whitworth because this is Francis Avenue all the way at the top. And then there's this really unusual cluster over here, which I've really never figured out, and I hope to figure out what, why there's this um, cluster here. But you can see those areas where racial restrictions were in place, here's 29th where all the Coles properties were, there's no black people living here. Um, so so these, these mechanisms, they worked. Um, it wasn't, you know, they weren't um, for naught. Sorry. All right, now I want to step back a little bit and look at the national context. Why are these covenants legal, and how does their status change over time? Um, prior to 1917, um, ordinances were set at the city level or municipal level, um, so city laws were made um, to segregate housing within the city. Um, so right at the city level, the city could say black people are going to live over here and white people are going to live over here. Um, they could literally make city laws that, that, that said that. In 1917, in Louisville, they had a law just like this. Um, it, it reads, an ordinance to prevent conflict and ill feeling between the white and colored races in the city of Louisville and to preserve the public peace and promote the general welfare by making reasonable provisions requiring, as far as practicable, the use of separate blocks for residences, places of abode, and places of assembly by white and colored people, respectively. So this is the law that's in place. A gentleman named Charles Buchanan, a white guy who lived in one of these neighborhoods, one of the white neighborhoods, um, sold a house to William Warley, a black individual. And uh, the, 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 like I said, the neighborhood that he lived in was one of these white neighborhoods. Um, Warley was not allowed to move in, even though he bought the home. Um, he wasn't allowed to move into it because of the restriction. Um, so he sued in court and said, hey, I, I bought this home. I should be allowed to move into it. Um, that's my property rights. Um, Buchanan rebutted with, hey, there's an ordinance in our city that says that, that that's not the case. Uh, it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and um, the Supreme Court sides, in this case, with Warley. Sort of a surprising um, verdict. Um, it's, it's, uh, it shows that, the, or in this case, the court was ahead of its time in the defense of the 14th Amendment, um, particularly the due process and equal protection clauses. Um, the Kentucky Court of Appeals, you know, all the way on up, ruled in their favor. Um, and this, this court case effectively made it illegal for cities to say that um, a, a black person or a white person could live in a certain neighborhood. It, it prevented legal segregation at the city level. Um, all U.S. citizens must enjoy the same right to sell, purchase, and convey property, no matter of color. So that's what we get here. So no longer can the city do it. 
Um, so we know we're not going to have any restrictive covenants before 1917 because they weren't needed. The city just did it for us before then. The next case, Corrigan versus Buckley. So after the city comes in and says, hey, or after the Supreme Court comes in and says, hey, cities, you can no longer segregate your, your city how you want to, um, cities realize, or, or cities or residents themselves, segregationists, um, find another way to do it. Um, they realize that by creating personal contracts between one another, or a covenant, a promise, um, they can get around this, or they think that they can get around this. Um, How does this happen? I can't remember. All these court cases get so confusing. Um, in the wake of this decision, segregationists sought to find another means to maintain their segregated cities. Um, they circumvented the Buchanan decision by using private contracts or restrictive covenants. Um, John Buckley uh, sued another white woman in his neighborhood who was trying to sell a black family a home. Um, so he, this one white woman was trying to sell to a black family her white neighbor sued and said, you can't do that, we have a restrictive covenant. The Supreme Court ruled in favor um, of uh, the, the white property owner and uh, she wasn't allowed to sell to him. So this essentially makes racially restrictive covenants legal. Um, it, it's a court case that supports um, their constitutionality. Then you have the Fair Housing Administration is founded in 1934. Um, the purpose is to provide mortgage loan guarantees in order to um, facilitate home ownership. And basically, it guarantees that your, your mortgage is going to be good. Um, it's funny, the, the FHA initial process actually supports segregation. Um, ultimately, the FHA is going to be critical to breaking down segregation. This is a really important case, or the most important case, I think we could say. In 1945, an African-American family by the name of Shelley purchased a house in St. Louis, Missouri. They were completely unaware that a restrictive covenant was in place on that property. Um, like I said, it's quite uh, common for these sales to happen without the restrictive covenants ever being passed to the purchaser. Um, in that city, or in uh, St. Louis, there was a, a restrictive covenant that prevented people of the Negro or Mongolian race um, from occupying the premises. Lewis Kramer, who lived 10 blocks away, sued to prevent the Shelleys from gaining possession of the property. 10 blocks away, sued from a, a, to prevent a black, black folks from moving into his area. Um, the Supreme Court uh, takes the case, it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and they rule in favor of Shelley. Um, basically saying that uh, restrictive covenants are unenforceable um, since the Constitution does not give any individual a right to demand action by a state which results in the denial of equal protection laws to other individuals. I know, very wordy, um, but that's just how it is. So this is really important. So 1948, restrictive covenants become unconstitutional. But remember I said earlier that, the, that they're putting them in place in Spokane well into the 1960s. Unconstitutional in 1948. Those ones that I showed you by the Coles family are put in after 1948. Strange. So something that's unenforceable and you're still adding it to the property documents. The Fair Housing Act of 1968. This is the big change. And this is what really creates the difference right here. 
Um, it's passed as a result over the outrage over the, of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. It's at least that's one of the catalysts um, who had called attention to racial inequalities in housing. Um, it was signed into law just a week after King died. It allowed third parties, allowed third party standing to individuals to pursue claims against legal enforcement of already unenforceable racially restrictive covenants, even if they were not personally discriminated against. So basically, it, it allowed you to seek damages for something that was unconstitutional. Um, before, it was unconstitutional, but there was nothing you could do about it. Now it was unconstitutional, and there was a means for you to do something about it. Basically, the FHA, in neighborhoods that had racial restrictions, said we won't um, certify your mortgages. We won't back your mortgages. So, so just 30 years before, when the FHA wasn't backing mortgages in diverse neighborhoods, because they were diverse and they wanted homogeneous neighborhoods, in 1968, they're doing the opposite. If you don't have a homogeneous neighborhood, or at least if you have laws preventing it from becoming diverse, um, then you, your, your mortgages were no good. Um, basically, the FHA forced these neighborhoods um, to stop practicing these rules. So back to Spokane. Second. Like I said earlier, when, when I first discovered these, uh, my passion for local history hit off, like, wow, this is really fascinating. Um, but also, my activism um, genes kicked in. Um, I, I was quickly wondering, how do these work? Are, are these, you know, are, are these still in, on the books? And like, as I've said, they, they really still are on the books. Um, so quickly, my focus changed from understanding the covenants to trying to remove them. Usually as a historian, my process is to research something and then to write about it. It's pretty standard, the research, and then I write. Um, in this case, I took a slightly different trajectory. I researched and then I called city council. Um, and I, I want to talk to my council members about how to remove this thing. Um, I, I met with them, I met with the city council, I met with the Human Rights Commission, um, and they were, were shocked by this, were moved by it, were interested in doing something about it, but they couldn't. Um, there really is nothing that they could do. Um, it, it was really hard for them to do anything. I'm trying to figure out what to do next. Um, my professor put me in contact with a journalist, Sean Vestal. Um, the next thing I knew, my research was on the front page of the Spokesman Review, and not everyone was happy about it. There it is. Pretty cool. I think Eastern was happy because I got Eastern Washington University's right on the front page. I think they were probably pretty happy. Um, but yeah, so I, I quickly had this, uh, everybody in Spokane that morning woke up to this on a Sunday morning. Um, you know, it got a lot of people thinking. Um, but like I said, I made a lot of people relatively unhappy, unfortunately. Here's some Facebook comments. I won't read them, but I'll give you a moment to read them. I show you this not to you know, discourage you from doing work like this that might be controversial. Um, I was obviously pretty even hurt that morning reading these things, it was shocking to me. I probably should not have been on the Facebook comments, should have just left that be, um, but I didn't. This is my favorite one here from Polly. 
It wasn't an African-American that read research, found, complained. It was a self-righteous college kid trying to be relevant. <laughs> I guess that's me. Um, I even got, I got hate emails. People were really angry at me. Um, as you see, they accused me of race baiting, of stirring the pot. Um, I wasn't trying to do any of that. Um, I, I've walked you through my process today. Um, I was just trying to wait, raise awareness to something that I think people weren't aware of. Um, I'd been studying local history for two years, and I had no idea. Um, I figured that most people in Spokane were probably unaware of this. It seemed newsworthy to me, um, and it seemed like something that, that people should be aware of. Um, I certainly wasn't trying to send us backwards in time. In fact, I was trying to push us forwards um, and just get us thinking about these things and, and, and how we're still dealing with these legacies today. Um, but mostly, mostly I show you this just because it's a good lesson um, for how controversial public history or any research that you do could be, um, and you should be ready for this sort of thing to happen. The main question that people ask me is why should we remove them? Um, I'm sure you saw that even one of the commenters, you know, if this costs money for the homeowners, why should they do this? Um, why does it matter? Um, and uh, Vicki Dalton, the Spokane County Auditor, sort of weighed in. Um, she said, quote, we preserve the original document so history is not erased. History is what happened. There were terrible things that happened in the past, and we shouldn't hide from them. We should face them. I, I completely agree with Vicki. She's right. Um, but Vicki's arguing that there's no reason to to change the working documents. Um, I'm not here advocating for erasure. I, I want no interest in erasure. I want these things to be preserved in an archival setting. However, I think that they don't need to be our working document anymore. I don't think that if a person of color buys a home in one of those neighborhoods I showed you, that when they get their closing documents, they should be faced with the reality that 30 years ago or 40 years ago, they weren't welcome in that neighborhood. That's wrong. It seems pretty simple to me. Um, I, I'm not advocating for these things to be destroyed or erased. I'm just advocating that we relegate them to history, and history is in the archives, not in working property documents. So what can we do to remove them? Um, that's like, you know, it feels helpless. Like Mark said, I tell you all this awful information, um, and now, now what can we do about it? Unfortunately, there's some remedies. Um, the newspaper article rose awareness to the issue. Uh, Rick Eichstadt from the Center for Justice became interested in the project, and he assigned a law student intern, Bethany Mikolas, who I mentioned earlier, to the project. Um, she researched the legal process to remove the covenants and started searching for a trial case. We needed to find somebody that lived in one of these neighborhoods that wanted to have them removed. Um, Fortunately, there's some RCWs that make it possible. Uh, RCW is Restricted Code of Washington. They're basically our laws, or, or one set of our laws. Um, and in 1969, the Washington State Legislature, Legislature passed its own version of the FHA. It voided discriminatory provisions and real property contracts. So, I need some more. The statute has been revised and expanded multiple times I mean, it now includes a number of, of groups, not just black folks, for example. Um, it also uh, you know, talks about unfair practices. Um, it, it really sets some ground rules in Washington state for fair housing. Um, another RCW passed in, um, in 1987, um, and it basically said um, discriminatory covenants, in addition to being void, 
are contrary to public purpose, and the continued existence of these covenants and restrictions is repugnant to many property owners and diminishes the free enjoyment of their property. I think that's a really good argument, the one I was, similar to one I was just making. And it's hard to enjoy your property if you know that you weren't welcome in it just 50 years ago, right? That's got to be on, weighing on you at some point. It authorizes a declaratory judgment action. Um, basically, it, it created to strike the void discriminatory provisions from real property contracts. Um, it essentially says if you bring an action before the superior court in the county that these exist, um, you should be able to have them removed. Cool part is, it may be done by any necessary party, meaning that an owner, an occupant, a tenant, a homeowner's association, any of those people might be able to bring this, um, which is really exciting for me. Uh, we might be able to get tenants, just renters, uh, might be able to bring this before the court, which is really cool. Um, there's a required court fee of $20. Um, that's not that much for one property, but for the hundreds of properties in Spokane, that will add up to some money. And there's some people I plan to ask for that money. Um, and uh, basically, if the court receives such action from, from a, a, a reasonable party, they're to issue an order striking the void provision from, property, from public documents um, and eliminating the void provisions from the title or lease of the property described in the complaint. Um, so basically, it, it, it makes a way for us to remove them. The, the auditor actually has to go in there and strike them from the record, um, which, is, which is what I'm advocating for. So what happens next? Like I said, I was working with the Center for Justice. Um, does anybody know who the Center for Justice is in Spokane? A few folks? Cool, they're just like a, I think they're a nonprofit. Um, and, and basically what the work that they do is legal work for people who can't afford it um, or legal work for people who don't have representation like the environment, um, things like that. And uh, they were interested in this and uh, they, hired, or they assigned Bethany to it um, and we were searching, searching, searching for somebody that lived in one of these neighborhoods. Um, we never could find somebody, um, nobody that was you know, willing to go through the process. So that's next. Um, what happens next is that I need to find somebody that's interested in doing this, and then we need to bring one before the court. Um, if we had success in doing that, we'd try to create sort of a self-help workshop. Uh, I'd approach Gonzaga Law, and I would see if we could set up a workshop on some Saturdays where homeowners that were interested could come down, sit down with some law students with one attorney in the room, and just pump out their little document that they need, head down to the courthouse with their 20 bucks, and file it. Um, basically make it really easy for property owners to do it. Like I said, first we have to have our trial case, um, but that's, that's the goal. Um, how, how am I going to get somebody? I think I need some Whitworth volunteers to go knock doors in these neighborhoods so that we can find somebody that wants to have these covenants removed. Um, but that's, <laughs> look at that. I've already got, I've already got some volunteers. Um, so yeah, that's, that's serious. Um, I, don't, I really don't know how else to do it. Um, it was in the newspaper... Um, I, I, sh I say this like it's sort of dismal. I, I got 50 emails from people trying to remove their covenants, but none of those people lived in a neighborhood that actually had racially restrictive covenants. So, so it's not that people didn't email me trying, it's just the, the wrong people emailed me trying. Um, so I just need the right people to email me, and then we could, we could try to move forward with the process. Um, so that's the plan. Oh, how can you help? I guess I just said that. 
Um, I, you know, I don't know what the formal process is yet, but that is my next plan, to try to drum together some volunteers, um, to go out there with some materials that, that sort of explain what, what I just said, you know, in less words, um, and encourage people to contact us so that we can, we can try to take the next step. I'll just leave you with that picture there. Um, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, to come in and listen to me. <laughs>